the Dharmic Evolution. Hey everybody, I'm your host, James Kevin O'Connor, singer, songwriter, audio video artist, and master storyteller. And with us from New York City, we have today Colin O'Donohoe. This man is a drummer, a musician, a songwriter, a composer, and he is the orchestra leader for the Pangean Orchestra. Where do you hear the tales that this man has to share with us today? Strap up your seatbelts and let's go for a ride. Colin, uh, Colin O'Donohoe here with me, and I just want to ask, how did it start for you, music in general? How did you get, you know, you, you all of a sudden you're a, well now you're a, you're a world maestro, you're an abs, you're an orchestra leader, so that is not something people run into every day. So how did it all start for you musically? Well, I feel that it began really as far back as I can remember life uh, for myself. Um, I grew up in a house, a you know, modest-sized house, uh, and my father is a disabled veteran of Vietnam, and for him, uh, music had always been a therapy, and it still is. He still listens to music a lot. And he Lucky has, you. <laughs> and he has, he has, oh my gosh, just, oh, well, one thing is he quit smoking before I was born, and for him, he realized how much money he had been spending on smoking. So he rewarded himself by buying gear, and he was an audiophile. So we were the first household in the whole probably neighborhood that had a CD player, and we had these just giant speakers, and he lost a little bit of his hearing, so whenever he listened to music, it was always loud. And he had a very wide palette, and still does, again, a wide palette of interests. So it wasn't just like Peter, Paul, and Mary or something like that. Like He did like them. He, he loved folk music. Uh, but he, uh, it, it was everything. It was, you know, country, it was classical. Uh, it was, um, he had African albums. He had a lot of Irish music. So, we, I mean, by the fact that you're in the house and because the music is loud, you're hearing it. So that was one thing. Uh, the other was I had an older brother and he, uh, MTV was coming of age. So music videos were on. My brother was huge into the heavy metal thing and going to Monsters of Rock and all these Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and uh, different bands, you know, uh, going to the concerts. And I was too young to go to the concert, but I could watch all the videos. And for me, I always thought that the drummers were the coolest. And I always honed in on the drums, always as a kid watching the videos um, and would listen to the drum beats. And, and I just, I really wanted to do that. That's so, so cool that you're a drummer. And, and actually, Colin and I met back uh, probably like five years ago in, in Los Angeles at a music conference. And my introduction to meeting Colin was all of a sudden this guy just says, hey, come on, let's jam. And he started playing these hand drums and got up. And I can't remember what they were called. Uh, a doombeck. Okay, so so he he was playing the doombeck and um, and gathered all these other individuals and all of a sudden everybody's jamming with Colin <laughs> and I and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it was, was great. Time. You were having a great time and I was just like I think I was playing the spoons or something or hitting the coffee cup. I don't know what I was playing, but I was trying <laughs> I was trying to participate, you know. Hey, but hey. Uh, but it was it was a good time and then I found out you were a orchestra leader so so go on about the drums and how you got you got you know in indoctrinated okay, like into the drums. evolution of it yeah. um so going through the that evolution as, as it's tied to your uh, podcast name there let's let's do that um okay so, the dharmic evolution man exactly. what we're becoming so, okay so how cool. did i so how did i get there uh 
so again, okay, so you got little kid me, and so little kid me is watching MTV with my brother, is listening to like Paul Simon and various musicians uh, through my dad, and then my dad also taking me. He always had season tickets to, or is that what it's called? I don't know, uh, to go see the Rochester Philharmonic. I grew up in Rochester, New York, which I feel is a great place to grow up. Uh, to learn music because of Eastman School of Music. Um, there are so many wonderful music teachers up in Rochester. So I was very thankful to grow up there. Uh, so we got to hear Hugh Mezzakila. We got to hear a lot of different people through my dad. Um, and then he, and then puberty hit. And so... Lucky kid, you. Exactly. So it, did so, it happen for, for you before you turned 20, 21? I left you a couple years, a couple years before. <laughs> you yeah. know, these Irish guys, we get cursed with that. You know, I think I was yeah. like, I was like 16 in school and everybody's like, you know, like six, nine. And, you know, I feel like a little kid, you know. So go ahead. <laughs> oh. Well, so for me, like around, I don't know, seventh grade ish, um, I realized, you know, hey, I wanted a girlfriend. And some of my other friends realized the same exact thing. Hey, we want a girlfriend. So we started a rock band, uh, really just because we wanted to get girlfriends. And that it worked. You know, it did work. It was successful. So that's a good strategy if you're 12 and listening to the podcast. It does work. Yes. Uh, however, <laughs> about a year and a half in, um, that wasn't good enough for me anymore. Um, like I had my social group and that was all fine and it was set. But for me... I wanted more out of my music and not to knock rock music because there are a lot of very phenomenal, great drummers that stuck with rock music. Uh, but I, I was looking for a different challenge and jazz offered that to me. And my eyes really opened during, a, I did a summer camp at Eastman School of Music and I was, uh, I was exposed to Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and music of uh, Philly Joe and Max Roach, and these are all jazz drummers that I'm naming. Um, and I was uh, exposed to all of their music, and it just blew my mind. It blew my mind that, that people could do that on a drum set. Yeah, you were keeping had, good had, company for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, had heard, I had heard Jimi Hendrix. I had heard Mitch Mitchell play, you know, uh, like on CD, obviously, and record, you know, through my father and through my brother and stuff. So right. Mitch Mitchell, like, I thought that was as crazy as it got. Yeah. But now I'm hearing Elvin Jones and I'm hearing Tony Williams and then I'm learning that uh, Jimi Hendrix actually wanted his drummer to be more like Tony Williams and like oh so that's that's where it's at yeah so that then I started practicing jazz I started and when I was in ninth grade I was playing drums about four hours a day by tenth grade it had grown to about six hours a day and I was just intensely intensely focused on drums and getting to be as great a drummer as I could and then the next step for me was that I didn't want to just be a drummer, not that anything is wrong with being a drummer, but I wanted to be a band leader. So then I had to start looking at what does the trombone section do? What does the trumpet section do? And I'm talking about big band. So like, you know, I started just asking friends what they did and looking at their parts. You know, I started looking at, you know, the first first trumpet because that gives you a, a great idea of of how the piece is structured if you look at the first trumpet so how old were you alto. when you when you when you figured this out that you were being pulled towards like you're 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 already doing you're already doing the drums and you're like keeping really amazing company with some of these jazz legends but all of a sudden you're pulled into the world of you're being pulled toward orchestra leader like did you know that consciously or like what pulled yeah. you towards that like um 
I don't, you know, I don't know exactly. I, I guess watching old videos of Duke Ellington's band and Count Basie's band and stuff like that, I, I guess I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to be a band leader. And, um, and I was also learning a lot of theory. I, I also really liked the music of George Gershwin. And so I thought I wanted, I, I don't know. I kind of wanted to write something as great as Rhapsody in Blue, and I wanted to be able to lead it. And um, I don't know. So it was probably about fourteen, fifteen. Wow, that's what... that is really. I mean, to me, I think that's so young to to have that that calling for something. So that's a pretty big uh, pair of shoes to walk into. You know? Yeah. It's like... And I was fortunate at my school. We had theory classes where at the end of the year you do an end of the year concert uh, of a piece you wrote. So the first in tenth grade, I remember writing for. A bunch of strings. I had I had a large group, probably about twenty people. Um, so I actually put on a piece of music, and you know, when you say it, you put it on, you actually did the. You know, you were actually the orchestra leader for something you wrote. Is that correct? Yeah, I wrote wow. all the parts. I wrote all the parts, did all the rehearsals, and then I conducted the the concert. But it, it was one piece of music. It was one, you know, four or five piece, you know, minute uh, piece of music, and there was lots of whole notes. Uh, That's for fantastic. This section. But still, you know. But still, it was a it was a large group, so that was one step. Right. So that was one step towards it, and then, you know, fast forward ten years or so, and I've been studying Chinese music at that time, and I moved to Pittsburgh uh, to go to grad school uh, for arts management. Now I did my undergrad um, at Arizona State. I had gotten an all state. I was the All-State drummer in New York my senior year of high school, and that helped me to get a scholarship to go to grad, undergrad. I got my undergrad in jazz performance, and then a couple of years later, decided I wanted to go on the other side of the music world and do nonprofit management and see how that world uh, works. That's pretty amazing. So, so you, so you, you were really uh, kind of getting yourself tuned up for this this huge yeah. undertaking of like, you know, a whole orchestra. You're not only going to just be the, the orchestra leader, but you're going to understand all the business functionality of how do you make this thing work as a, as a well-oiled machine. Yeah, I realized my own limitations. You know, I realized what I didn't know and what I needed to know or at least have the basic knowledge of so that when you do hire people or you uh you get board members and you get whoever at least you know you're going in the right direction and you can speak their language uh, the, the the language of business and, and right stuff. right so at, at under so at graduate school um i formed new moon orchestra uh with the help of some other uh musicians that were chinese uh chinese musicians and we ran that group for two years and no one wanted to lead it so that's really where I got my start as a conductor really was because no one else wanted to do it and I was the only one willing to do it. So I took up the baton at that point and uh, I did take conducting in undergrad and then I took some conducting lessons at Carnegie Mellon and, um, you know. So you didn't just decide, well, I'm just going to be an orchestra leader. I'm going to lead a Chinese orchestra. Like, right. let's make this as complicated as we can possibly make it. <laughs> yeah. So that was my start was New Moon Orchestra. That was, that's really it was a great. It was a great experience. We we had a great following. We had great concerts. It was really good. Uh, and I loved I loved it. I loved my time with New Moon. And this so, was based in, in Arizona. 
No, Pittsburgh. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. This is in Pittsburgh. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then so, you fast forward another year, a couple of years, and then you get to Pangean, which is instead of just Chinese music, let's bring in everything. Let's bring in every single country, all centuries. It could be a modern instrument like turntable or electric guitar. It could be an ancient Babylonian instrument like the kanun. Hey, was that... Uh... Was that an epiphany, like in one shot, or did that happen kind of organically, just like piece by piece? How did you ever d- decide, like, I'm getting all of these instruments from all over the world and players who, you know, have command of these instruments? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, that really was an epiphany. Um, and it actually happened at a music conference. And I remember just going to lots of different clinics and listening to people talk and. You know, they talk about what what drives you and what do you want to do and you know what excites you, what what gets you up and, and excited for music in the morning. And I knew I wanted to do something. I knew I wanted to do something big, and I and I just I didn't know what. And then one day it did just hit. Oh, Pangean Orchestra. I'll get. I actually I don't think I even had a name yet uh, for it. I just I knew. Oh, I want to do a world orchestra. I want people from all over the world together. And then Pangean comes from a Latin term, which was when all the continents were one. And it was before the continental drift to where America is where it is today. But at one point, all the continents were together. So really, to me, it symbolizes us as one people. We're one race and trying to get to one sound. If we can get a, a sound where we play together as one unit in uh and just make it beautiful. Uh, so that's, you know, that's where that came from. So let me ask you, what was the motivation and the inspiration behind Pangean? Um, that particular, you know, style of music, like it's it's a very world class. Uh, something must have inspired you to say, hey, I want to do this. It's really unique, very, very different. And I don't think anybody else is doing this. Like what, what possessed you to do Pangean? Uh, during 2003... I was standing in line to return something and the person behind me was on his cell phone and he said, hey, come on over later. We'll have a few beers and we'll watch the bombs drop. And he was talking about the uh, beginning stages of uh, the shock and awe in the Iraq. uh, um, You know, you can call it an invasion. You can call it a skirmish, whatever you want to. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to color it or be political in any way, but our conflict. Right. 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 So. Um, and back then, if, if your listeners remember, that you would see these green screens and you would see these little missiles go and then there'd be explosions. And so to me, to hear someone treating it like a spectator sport that, and my father being a veteran, it just it didn't, it didn't sit well with me. And so that planted a seed as far as what could I do to, to try to battle ignorance um, on that front. So with Pangean, what I wanted to do was bring everyone from around the world together on one stage uh people from iraq iran israel from africa from asia from south america from australia from everywhere put them on stage together and do live shows um and show that we could you know through all these exotic instruments and and that's part of the fun for the viewers and the listeners is to hear and see these bizarre to the to the you know to the newcomer they're bizarre looking instruments right um and then get to hear them and then find out that it's beautiful like the kora say from uh west africa 
is very bizarre to look at. Uh -huh. If you look at a Cora, K-O-R-A. Okay. Um, you look at it and you go, what is that? And it's one of the most beautiful sounding string instruments, you know, you'll hear. And Africa, you know, the common conception is drums. So you think of Africa, you think of drums. You don't think of beautiful harp. And the Cora is really one of the most beautiful harp instruments on the planet. And it, and it comes from West Africa. So, so I was trying to kind of battle that. So I thought if we could be a catalyst for at least conversation and say, wow, look, there's, there's uh, Arabs, there's Asians, there's you know, all these people up on stage are working together. And, uh, you know, it, at least it, it's a, a catalyst. I'm not saying I'm going to change anything overnight, but at least it's one step in the right direction and you're the change you want to you wanna be, right? So, right. Um, and also when I interview people or I put them on different shows, you know, I am a white guy. I'm very white and I have blue eyes and I, I feel like I joke, but like, Hey, I'm friendly, and you know, I'm talking to this guy, and it, it didn't hurt me. <laughs> right. So if it if it didn't hurt me, it won't hurt you. you know, you'll be okay. An Irishman. You know these Irish so guys. What are they doing? You know, in the Pangean <laughs> Orchestra. Never heard of such a thing. Exactly. So <laughs> I get to I get to show. Hey, it's all right. right. It's not gonna hurt you. It's safe. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I try to be a bridge. If I can be a bridge between uh, unknown lands and the West, and I feel like I'm doing a good thing. Right. So, yeah, so, I mean, it really kind of happened semi on accident, and then semi, i am always been very self-driven and motivated, and I believed it was possible. Uh, that's another big part of it is you believe it can be done. So I believed that an orchestra of this type could exist, and if you believe that it's possible, that's the first major, major step. Um, then, you know, you just kind of start where you stand and you start with the tools you're given and uh, and you work from there. You take a step every day or you take, if you're lucky, five steps in a day and you find some other allies and you find some other musicians and then you find some sponsors. And, so let me and ask it you just this. grows organically. You started this like how long ago? The, and, and you corrected me, it's Pangean. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah, like, Pangean. So, and the name comes from the Latin Pangea, which uh, is the theoretical, and it's believed by many scientists that a long time ago there was continental drift, and at one point the continents were all one. And through continental drift, we now have the United States where it is today and, and Africa where it is today. But if you look at our continents, they fit together like a puzzle if you were to like squish them right. uh, back together. And so it's believed that we were one land. And so that's why the name of our orchestra is that, is because we're one people. And it's a belief that we're, we're the human race. We're one, uh, we're one race. And we just play. We, we might look different. We might play. We might talk different. You just uh, <laughs> spoke with an accent a second ago. We might yeah. sound different. Yeah, I love but we're, the... Uh, but we're the same. We're the same. It's so uh, eclectic, though. I mean, you've got, like, people, just for people who haven't had a chance to visit with uh, Colin... And his projects, he has people from literally all over the world, every, you know, like, you know, I don't say every country, but the most diverse countries on the on the face of the earth are all, you know, are all involved somehow. And tell me, like, how long how long have you been is uh, Pangean been in existence right now? Like what you're like? Uh, so we really started back in, I'd say, 2009. OK, we had our first major concert in 2010. 
and we've been going since then. And we have an orchestra is still alive and well and kicking in Arizona. And we now have an ensemble that's been growing in New York City for the past year. And while we've done some, you know, we had a performance at Make Music New York last year, and we've done some little soft launch type things, we haven't had a real firm launch of the orchestra in New York City yet. Uh, but that'll change soon. You know, right now we're, we're rehearsing a lot. We're getting our, our repertoire together. We're getting our sound together. We, you know, when you, when you mix brass... Uh, with lutes and plucked string instruments, um, sound balance becomes very important. So, you know, we have some great engineers that are helping us with mics and with soundboards and just um, not to make us blast and not to make us super loud, but just to get everything tasteful and everybody's in line. Well, I can see where this is like, you know, this is such, it's unproven ground. I mean, I don't know that there's very many people doing what you are, are doing. No, if anybody, so it's, really. So. There's similar groups. There's a, like a group in Vancouver that does something similar. Um, and there's, I think there's, a, there's some people in the Netherlands that are trying something similar. But we're all a little different in our approach. Uh, we also have Turntable in our, in our group. So we mix not only countries but uh, centuries as well. So like the Turntable is not really yet, I think, respected as a full-fledged instrument or definitely not a highbrow instrument needs another so, 20 years yeah yeah at, le at least <laughs> and it's an amazing instrument and it's very versatile and it's so much that can be done with a turntable so like you have a, an instrument have called the, the shawin right is it am i pronouncing it correct the shawin that doesn't sound familiar x-u-n X. Oh, Shun. 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 Yeah. Okay. Shun. So um, we do. Well, that's uh, so that's a Chinese instrument. That's like an egg. Um, it, I mean, it, it's a, like an ocarina. Okay. Um, it's not the most common. We had it back in uh, New Moon Orchestra. I think we may have had one uh, briefly with uh, with Pangean. Um, but yeah, I mean, we yes, we've used it. It's very quiet. Um, I believe there might be a video of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw to, uh, you were you were discussing it on your website, and I saw there's a photo. It okay. looked like a wind, it's like a flute or something. Is that correct, or is it? Yeah. Is, is it is it kind of a is it kind of a flute type of instrument? It's a wind instrument. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hey, uh, tell me about Opus Fifty Two. This is really exciting. Um, I was checking out some of your work on there. And could you oh, just thanks. tell our audience a little bit about Opus 52 and, and what it is and what you're doing with it? Sure. Um, let me take a sip of coffee here because that uh, Shun question. Yeah, I threw you <laughs> I for a loop on sure that. I need to make sure I give it. Yeah, yeah, you see yeah, that? yeah. I got to make sure because I answer you, things correctly. It's it's X-U-N, and then I'm going, well, how do you say it? And it's like, okay. Mm. So I wrote Shu-In, but it's really Shun. That's all right. You know, That's all right. So I got to no work problem. on my, you know, you know my, no, no, my no, world. No, no, no. No, world you, instruments. You, hey, you're like light years <laughs> ahead of others. No, no problem. But Opus 52, I'd love to talk about it because uh, actually, so that um, for me was the response to reading a book that I believe all musicians should read called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Okay. I believe his name, Stephen Pressfield, or yeah, pretty sure that's his name. It's a fantastic book. Uh, he's a, I think he's a great author. And he talks in that book about being an artist and what the real 
what the real enemy of art is or what the real struggle is. And his thesis is that it's resistance and resistance meaning procrastination, meaning you just don't do it for whatever reason you don't do it. So, so the resistance is within, within us, the musicians. It could be, you know, he'll like, it's a great book and I strongly recommend reading because he explains it way better than I can because it's his, it's his uh, kind of thesis. It's his idea. Okay. But, but the way I internalize it, it can be external and it can be internal. It can be just lack of motivation. You can feel like, oh, I don't feel like writing. It could be fear. It could be like, oh, I'm going to write, but it's going to sound horrible, so I don't want to write. Um, it could be a lot of different. It could be your, you know, your family, your friends say, hey, let's go out tonight. Let's do this tonight. Let's, And then you allow yourself to you know, kind of spend more time outside your studio than you should. Right. And so you don't say, no, I've scheduled this time to be in the studio. I'm going to write. And uh, he's also a Marine, so he's a very disciplined guy and can say, hey, no, this is my writing time. You know, okay. 10 to 2, 10 to two whatever. Right. So, so my response was um, to do this Opus 52 was, well, that will force me to have to produce a piece of music every single week. And the added... Uh, challenge because I've seen other people do similar type of projects but what makes Opus 52 unique is that I write a piece of music in the meter of the week so what that means is in the second week of the year it was in either cut time or 2-4 uh, in the fifth week of the month I wrote in 5-8 uh, last week was the 17th week so we just finished our 17th week of the year so I wrote in 17-8 this week will be uh, week 18, so I'll write a piece of music in 18. It'll either be 18.4 or it'll be 18.8. And then that's going to continue until week 52. So I will write something in 52, 52.8, 52.4, 52.16. So what a challenge. Know. I mean, this is, this is really cool. I mean, first of all, the schedule is challenging enough because you have to produce right. a piece of music every single week. So right. that in itself is... That's like really throwing it down and saying, I, yeah. I want a real challenge. But you're you're doing like insane time signatures. <laughs> like uh, Exactly. Like yeah. uh, I don't even know how I would uh like what do you you can't even use a metronome on this stuff. It's like <laughs> No, yeah. Well, so I've played a lot of odd meter music. Uh -huh. uh, I've played with an American Turkish band for a while. Um I've played with the Pangean Orchestra. We we've uh worked with Indian musicians and uh, the Indian classical philosophy on time is not anything like what the Western is. And for your listeners, again, normally the music you listen to is in 4-4. Four, four. Right. So almost everything you're going to hear is in 4. So for me saying I'm writing in 18, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, But I mean, isn't so, that generally, Colin, accepted in, in other cultures that they're not going to use the Western 4-4 four, four meter for, for their music. They're, they, they seem very... to gravitate towards something, you know, that's that's odd, but it's, it, you know, it's indigenous to their culture. It doesn't feel oh, yeah. odd to them at all. Yeah, like you hear the uh, the brass bands that come out of the Balkans, and right. um, their music's either in 9-8 or 11-8, and that's, um, that's a and not only are the musicians playing it, but you have bankers and you have doctors and whoever who dance to it. Right. So so the whole people, all the people, understand that meter. It's not just the musicians. It's not just a intellectual exercise. They actually feel it 
and they groove on it. And to them, that's what home feels like. Nine eight feels like home to them. Right. So it's not foreign or weird or anything to them. To us, it is. To us Americans, yes. Well, you got these old cowboy guitar players all yelling out, "Where's one?" (laughs) Right. It's well, (laughs) it's gonna, it's gonna, it's it's gonna be a little. it, It it will be jarring sometimes. You know, I try to make melodies and things where it it really flows and you know you can kind of pick up on one you might not be able to count everything but at least you can kind of feel where one is coming in so you're Uh, doing things like like you know just for the benefit of of people who think we're talking like in another language um you know like you're doing things like peter gabriel got into all these kinds of things like later in his career and and paul simon even you know went to africa and said you know i need something different i need you know different cadences different rhythms to to help me like you know in my evolution of where i'm going in my life but you're doing you've taken it like to another level i mean you started where they ended up and i mean you're you're like i mean you're incorporating all of these different instruments these different rhythms and one of the things i wanted to ask you about is this uh what you call rhythmic dissonance which i love it the mixed meters in other words you're taking you know please explain it to the to the audience what is mixed metering and, and how exciting it is? So, well, let me let me just uh, talk about rhythmic dissonance for a second. Okay. So, so you mentioned rhythmic dissonance, and I do talk about that I, on the YouTube channel that I have, uh, and I explained it through an example using Lateralis by the band Tool. Um, and hopefully some of your viewers are Tool fans because they are phenomenal, and they do a lot of these things uh, that you said, Peter Gabriel, Paul Simon, yes, they've done it, and Tool, Tool's done it as well. And okay. so what they do is their band uh, does something similar to what Stravinsky's done and uh, some other great uh, conductors uh, uh, and composers of the past have done. So they put half the band is, so they're in 6-8. Let's say they're in 6-8. Half the band is playing in 3, half the band's playing in 2. And so what that means is, as a listener, sometimes the band sounds like they're together and they're jamming and you can kind of bob your head. And then all of a sudden, you can't. And you think the band has messed up. You might have thought the band made a mistake. And it sounds like the band's getting far apart from each other or that they're just, you know, they're flipped and they're, uh, they're, they're just, you know, totally lost. And then all of a sudden they're back together. And that moment where it sounds like they're lost and it sounds like everything is flipped and not going the right way, that's that rhythmic dissonance because you're having a three go against a two. There's a rub. Right. And, and we feel it. We don't understand it maybe intellectually, but us just American listeners who are used to our four or four, we do feel it and it makes us uncomfortable but then we feel comfortable again when the rhythmic dissonance is gone. So dissonance is something composers have used forever as a way to make a listener feel uncomfortable. And it's really a tension and a release. So you'll have, even in, in pop songs, uh, sometimes they'll go to a five chord and they might even throw in the dominant seven. And they're, so it'll sound dissonant. And then they release you into the chorus and the chorus hits on one and we have this nice bright you know new melody for the chorus and and so the listener had a dissonance and then they were released so that's what the the uh rhythmic dissonance is okay so you uh, composed a, a track and and i'm gonna 
take a, a real chance here and try to say it. Alia Yakta Est. Was I close? Right. <laughs> I don't know because I don't speak Latin. Okay. But I think it's Alia Jacta Est. Okay, the I um, is a J. Okay, so you're saying yeah. Jacta Est. Okay, so I yeah. checked that out. It was awesome track. Thanks. And, and you know, for people who um, want to get a, a, a handle on this, you can go to Colin's website and Opus. It's under Opus Fifty Two, correct? Is it? Or, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Go to WorldMaestro.com and then click on the tab that says Opus Fifty Two, and all the tracks are there. You can listen to them in their entirety, and uh, it's it's free to listen to everything. And Alea Jacta Est. I'm really excited about that, and I will have some YouTube videos up about it. Because that is in either seven and a half eight. That cracked or, me up. Or, I saw that on yeah. your website. Seven and a half eight slash eight. Right. So that's a time yeah. signature. That's uh, <laughs> well, it is now. It is now. Or right? or fifteen eight. Yeah. Perfect. And actually, that was shown to me by an Indian musician a few years ago. He said, "Let's play in seven and a half eight. Now I thought he was making it up. Right. Right. And then I was on the subway. I live in Manhattan. Uh, so I was on the subway like a month ago. And I had an epiphany on how that made sense, like how, actually it was probably more like two months ago now, um, on how to play that and make it feel good. Because I would do it and you'd say, yeah, that's right. But it, it, I didn't think it felt right. I didn't think it felt good. So I will do some videos, uh, tutorials on you know, how other people can do it. And the reason why I, I, I named it Alea Jacta Est and the reason why I, I'm excited is I think that track could be uh, a turning point and could be a place where, especially in the realm of hip hop, I think seven and a half, eight could be extremely useful because you could still dance to it. It has like a great, uh, great ability to be bouncy and to give you that kind of, that, that cool, fun uh, beat. But also the thing about hip hop is that they're all about having off beats and having, you know, accents on the upbeat of a thing. And that's really what makes hip hop kind of fun to listen to is what they do, not just on the downbeat, but what they do with the rest of the beat. And so seven and a half, eight, I think can offer hip hop uh, producers, musicians, a, a new way to get that out and I think it could get it out to the masses and I think seven and a half eight could actually be popular in the United States now that is probably a crazy how could sound crazy and revolutionary or whatever but everything but really, does in the beginning doesn't it <laughs> yeah but I do think seven and a half eight could actually be something that in 20 years you're like oh yeah seven and a half eight yeah yeah we're yeah, all doing, that, doing that, that now right we're all yeah. playing that I think it's possible <laughs> it's, I know it sounds crazy but that's why I feel like I do need to explain it well, and I think the only way to do that is with a few visuals and compare it to 8 8. So you have 8 8. Um, so I actually compare 7 8, 7 and a half, 8, and 8 8. So you just see where the difference is, and then you see exactly why it is, what it is. And um, yeah. I think and it's cool. Other I think it's very it. cool. And, and you're, you're expanding people's thinking. Hey, uh, Time is but a stream. I go, I go a fishing in. Time is but yes. a stream. I go a fishing A fishing in. I'm sorry. I'm gonna say it again. Time is but a stream. I go a fishing in. So that's a quote that you love by who is it by? Uh, Henry David Thoreau. All right, cool. So tell me about that, and that applies to stretching time, correct? Yeah. Well, so, so this, I mean, it depends on how you take it, and that's a beautiful thing about art. Right. And um, that book, Walden Pond, is 
has gotten me through a lot of times uh, in my life. I, I love the book. I love visiting Walden Pond. It's beautiful, especially in the fall. I love New England and going to New England. Um, and reading that book, especially when going through say heavy production periods for either music I'm writing for uh, various media or if I'm putting on a huge show I like to listen to that book at night I, I have an audiobook of it because it takes me back in time and it takes me to a simple place and it takes me to nature and Thoreau talking about just you know strip down humanity and and life and you know so to me, I took that phrase, I loved the phrase, and to me, I thought, yeah, I could play with time, and time's not um, linear, and you, you, can, you can stretch it, you can play with it, you can mold it like Play-Doh. Right. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take time, and I'm going to play with it. So I'm going to keep stretching it and stretching it and stretching it for the rest of the year. And we'll we'll see what comes of it. And the exciting thing about Opus Fifty Two is, does he do it? Does he get it in? You know, right. like is there a new piece up, or did he just you know say, oh, this is actually hard. I'm not going to do this. So that's part of it too. Is uh, you know the anticipation and the waiting and to see what has he got next. It's an amazing so, challenge, man. It's so yeah. good to challenge yourself like that and and then see it you know come to fruition. Hey, tell me about your film Earthbound. So Earthbound, so Earthbound is a it's a project by Robin Shu, who was in Mortal Kombat. He's the bad guy. I forget his character's name, but um, it is it was filmed in Indonesia, and right now it's in post production. And that's a, a movie that I'm really excited to be the composer for. I'm doing the soundtrack for it, and that's something like like I said. Sometimes I have deadlines and things I have to work on, so. Uh, this month, that's my my big project. So it might become tense at times, and I may have to turn to Thoreau and you know chill out and relax uh, at the end of a day of composing. Right. Um, but it's a it's a great movie. I don't want to talk too much about plot and everything because it's a short film, and I feel like if people are excited about Earthbound, uh, as soon as I have links, I'll put it up on my website and you can put it up on yours as well. Right. Um, but it's such a short film and, and the story unfolds so quickly that I don't want to give anything away about it other than I'm excited to be a part of it. Great, man. Hey, I wanted to ask you about, back to the orchestra for a minute, such an undertaking to be a conductor for an orchestra. And I'm not really sure how the you know uh, the dynamics of the band if you will the orchestra like the whole you know the whole blueprint of how does this work i mean how do you guys you know get gigs how do you sustain yourselves i mean is there enough and you know enough demand that you can you know the people that that are in it can make a living doing this like what is what are the challenges and the and obviously we know the benefits just playing in this this organization must be amazing but being the music business, what it is, um, what are your challenges with that? How do you guys hold the whole thing all together? Well, you're 100% correct. It is hard to sustain it, and um, everyone in the group is professional, so they all get paid uh, when we do performances. So uh, 
having my degree in nonprofit management at Carnegie Mellon, you learn that there's multi, there's various ways to get income, and ticketing income, or buy you know buying a ticket to the show is only one way, uh, but you can get sponsors, you can get individual donors, um, and there's other there's other there's grants, and there's other streams of income that you can can look for and and become available to you. So it's always a hustle. I mean, it's always about just finding the opportunities. Now, the one cool thing about our group is, yes, there's one way we can perform, and that's as an entire large group. But we can also take three people and send them out on a gig, and they play a gig. And it could be an Irishman, it could be an Asian, and it could be an Australian guy or or an Arabic musician and, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, whatever uh, variable you want to do. So are you and running so, the whole thing, Colin? I mean, are you like, are you the single point of contact or do you have other resources that are, that are helping you with all this? So no, I'm not, I'm not doing it alone. And I wanted to make sure I didn't do it alone because when I ran Newman Orchestra at first, it was on my own. And then in the second year, I got a lot of help. Uh, and w- once I got help, it was, you know, so much better. Right. So uh, before I even launched Pangea, and I wanted to make sure that there were other people that were going to help. And so there are other people that work um, on, say, finding gigs, on finding income, on finding grants, on writing grants um, and things like that. So if it was just me, it would collapse. And I've told people that the entire time, if it, if it was the Colin O'Donoghue Orchestra, it, it would 100% collapse because I can't, I can't recruit musicians, I can't keep relationships with musicians, I can't rehearse musicians, I can't get repertoire, I can't train on repertoire, I can't you know memorize repertoire, and do all the other business things all together. So we are a, we're a 501c3, we do have a board, mm-hmm. and uh, we do have you know a t- it's a team effort, and it's. It has to be a team in order for Pangean to succeed today and for it to be alive, you know, two years from now and 10 years from now. And at some point, you know, you ideally, like you hope Pangean Orchestra will be together a very long time and it outlives me, right? So so you hope that you put together a strong board and a strong team um, so that the vision can be alive for hundreds of years and evolve and get better and better and better the entire time. So it's not, yeah, so it is a nonprofit. It's it's similar to any other orchestra in that respect, that they're nonprofits. And the founding members of like the New York Philharmonic are obviously no longer with us. But their vision and their idea is, and that's what's beautiful, and that's what keeps going, you know, keeps going. It's the same with the opera and, and any other of the nonprofits. Hey. Being a, a new nonprofit, you know, we're still kind of a baby. Right. So we're, and we're kind of still unproven. Uh, we have had a short documentary done on us called Immigrant Orchestra, and we have had some limited, you know, successes, but we're still rather unproven, and we still need, you know, there's some bars we have to pass and uh, achieve, I think, before more funding can come to us. Hey, tell so, me about um, tell me about your like your downtime, like. What do you do? You're, you've got such an eclectic streak up and down your spine that when you're doing downtime, when you're just like saying, I need to just chill and I want to listen to music for me, what's your favorite go-to music? What do you like the most? 
Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I really enjoy that question. So downtime. It depends on my mood, probably like anyone else. Um, let's see. If I'm trying to chill, I guess my favorite music that reminds me of, of like makes me feel safe in things would be the Clancy Brothers um, and Tommy Makem and Liam Clancy. Mm-hmm. And uh, those concerts, I, I love Irish folk music. So that would probably be my top, number one top thing. Um, so when you're, when you're in that zone, is it's pure enjoyment. It's just like you don't have to think, like you, you're, you, can, you oh, kind of right. turn it off. Like you don't have to say, well, I'm composing, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You're just kind of taking it in and, and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that yeah, actually, I just played that this morning. So um, that's at the top of my mind. Um, so yeah, that would be probably my my top go to. Um, and then as far as like stress relief or whatever, there's a one of my favorite albums of all time is Lush Life by John Coltrane. Oh wow! Okay. And that has a couple of really great tracks on it, especially Lush Life itself, is one of my favorite tracks that he recorded. Uh, for people that that like John Coltrane, it's actually very mellow. It's not one of his more um, wild albums, like uh, you know. And, and I like those as well, but right. it, this is more him being pretty mellow. And Lush Life is just a great album, and the Clifford Brown Max Roach album too. When I want to, like, if I if I'm say in a theory or comp- say like say sometimes. I'm deep in a composition and I have projects and deadlines and things and I want to listen to music, but I want to listen to something mentally stimulating as well. I'll listen to that Clifford Brown Max Roach album and it kind of reminds me of being a kid because I, I had to learn those drum solos um, as a kid, but also it's just it's just great musicianship right. uh, on that album. So I would say those, you know, Lush Life, Clifford Brown Max Roach, and then anything by the Clancy Brothers or the High Kings who... The High Kings are actually content, like they're they're new, they're they're out and playing music now. Uh, Patty Riley, okay, there's a, pa- a live Patty Riley uh-huh. album that I really love, and like a song called Spansel Hill, and Carrick Fergus, and pieces like that. Um, and there's, and um, so 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 I so that's that's your your oh, and you too as well. I love you too. Oh, okay. So like I like. Um, Octung Baby and Rattle and Hum and Joshua Tree and yeah. uh, gosh, A Wide Awake in America or was oh Bad I forget the name of that one album Unforgettable Fire yeah um, I liked a lot of the U two albums as well good so you, you have no choice you're Irish man you, you got to go there <laughs> so I, mean, I guess you know? I, I I guess I named a lot of <laughs> Irish people with the Clancy Brothers and the High Kings and U two I you know what I really like and I can enjoy is uh, good lyrics. Okay. And um, and I I think Bono is probably just one of the best lyricists of all times. Um, yes. Even absolutely. even with some of the songs like even now, like I don't I don't like this all the maybe all the new stuff, but there's still great lyrics um even on the new stuff that I don't listen to as much. Yeah. I still say, Wow, those are great lyrics. Yeah. So yeah, he's I don't know he's got he's, it going on for sure. He's a he's a genius, and yeah, no, he's a he's a genius. Hey, what do you what do you like to read, man? Like you mentioned, uh, Stephen Pressfield earlier, right? Uh, the War of Art, correct? That's the yes, yeah. So yep. that sounds like a, I'm, I wrote that one down, but but what else? Um, 
what else is hot for you and, and like how much time do you have to read you got a pretty busy life so um like what do you like what are you reading currently what have you been reading in the past you know six months or so that that kind of stand out for you okay well that, that's a good question um so everything that I read uh, is audiobooks because I'm visually impaired. So um, you, told I don't... That, you told me that that you you that you're legally blind. Now, yes, I'm now, legally blind. Now, when did this happen, Colin? Is this something? Uh, when I was 23, uh-huh. I think. Well, 2000. And, no, I was 25. Sorry, okay. 25. Right. Yeah. So I have something called Best Disease. It's a form of macular degeneration, and what it means is I don't have my central vision but I do have my peripheral okay. vision. Okay. So it does stop you from, you know, being able to, uh, to read. Um, and I may read music as well. So uh, what I have to do when I'm reading scores and getting ready for rehearsals is I memorize everything I can. Uh, I will listen to music uh, infinite times to memorize as much as I can, know the parts. And then I use nice bright markers to make big marks on my pages. Oh, okay, French horn has to do this here. So wait a minute, uh, you're a conductor, so you have to memorize. So visually, in your mind, you have to you have to connect all your physical moves to what's on that paper. Yes, but I feel that I bet you, and I haven't talked to a lot of conductors, but I will bet you, they do use their peripheral vision <clears throat> more than their central anyway when uh when on stage and also conductors really earn their money in the uh preparation stages okay. uh they they don't go on stage and read they know the score right. before they get on stage when they get on stage it's about making sure that the musicians do what they want or what they believe the composer wanted because it's it's really interpretation and so that's why you hear different orchestras play the same piece of music differently the conductor read the score prepared the score and thought oh i'm going to bring this out more than this or i'm going to have the strings play this instead of this um and what i'm talking about is uh techniques you know and and bowings and uh how how deeply to bow or or just various phrasings and um when and in the with the winds like where we're going to phrase, where we're going to take a breath, where we're going to be quiet, where we're going to be loud, what are we going to bring out, what do we want to make staccato, what do we want to, you know, where do we want to emphasize the band, who's got the spotlight. All these kind of things are things that a conductor is going to help the orchestra to know. Like, okay, you guys lay out because it's, this is the clarinets. The clarinets have it now. All right? So if I can't hear clarinet, then we have a problem. So, if you can't so hear... that communication is all, like, I mean, I always found that fascinating. How can, like, you know, 50 pieces of music all be looking at this one guy and know what everybody, you know, it's like a, you know, traffic control central. How do you, so you have all these subtleties when you're cueing them and so forth. They know while they're watching you exactly what you're saying and to whom. They do because you rehearse it, right. and uh, so you 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 communicate it during rehearsals, and then they know. Um, and then you know, if you have to give someone a dirty look or yeah. <laughs> point at them and say no or right. anything like that, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm more of a band leader from the jazz uh, school uh-huh. than I am a conductor from the Western Europe uh, classical conductor school. Okay. So I feel like I'm more of a Ellington or a Basie or uh, even Maria Schneider. You're cool. Who's, You're basically cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm just I'm just a jazz based 
conductor more than I'm yeah yeah I'm I'm not even Leonard Bernstein who Leonard Bernstein uh, is is very American in how he did things but he was still very classical in how he ran uh, the New York hey, uh, orchestra tell me tell me what's the most what's the favorite thing you got a lot of uh, on your resume here you've got a lot of um a lot of gifts, a lot of uh, things that you do during your week, during your month. What's your favorite thing? Uh, is, is it, it's got to be conducting, is it not? Or would you rather be on a drum kit or percussion? Like, what's your favorite all-time thing out of all the things you're doing? You know, you're doing film, you're doing conducting, you're doing music, you're writing scores. Like, You know, I, I guess, like, as much as... Okay, so I'm driven, like I have this internal drive to lead an orchestra, and I do feel very much alive when I'm doing that. It's got to be but a I, rush, man. I mean, I, all that energy, well, like, you know, like you're controlling all that energy or you're a part yeah, of it, you know, it's like, it's got to be amazing. It, I guess you're so in the moment, you don't have time to enjoy it. And maybe I'm still too young or too new in it. I don't know. Like, I'm so worried all the time i'm so into making sure that it goes right that i cannot take a step back i can't say oh wow this is really enjoyable because i'm so in it i'm so like okay what's next what's next what's next right and i'm making sure that things are going well so it's actually it's pretty stressful really i mean i enjoy it when it's over it's kind of like like i ran a 10k yesterday Right, congratulations and, and, on that. I saw that post thanks. on Facebook. That's awesome. Yeah. And you did that for your brother, correct? Or that yes, you dedicated? I did. And you, yeah, I did. Your, and I, re- I wore a Rollins Band t-shirt. Your brother just passed recently. He did, now, three weeks ago. Now, I'm, I'm so sorry about that. Now, was he your was he the older brother that you referenced yes. earlier? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. right. Uh, that's that's just horrible, man. So you've, that's yeah. a really crushing, crushing thing to happen. Yeah. So he was a big Henry Rollins fan, and so... That's why the the image I've got a Rollins uh, T-shirt on. So that was that was for him. But when you run the 10K, or for, at least for me, I, I'm running it and it's uh, stressful the whole right. time. Yeah. But when you're done, you're like, yay! You yeah, know, you the endorphins really, kick in. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, you feel good. It's over. You're not running anymore. Yeah. And uh, you can enjoy it. And I feel when I'm conducting with Pangean. You know, ah, there's so many things that I got to make sure go right. And I am a perfectionist and I want to make sure things go as as smoothly, as perfectly as possible. Right. So, you know, I don't I, I would say like to your question about like what what's my favorite, like that's what I want to do. And that's what I want to kind of be known for. And that's what I want to leave my mark on the planet as but I'm so into it at the time, I, it's hard to enjoy it. For me, playing Irish music, I play the tin whistle, and actually being a nobody and going to a session, an Irish session, and I go to Dempsey's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan every Tuesday, or well, I try to go every Tuesday. Um, I actually enjoy that more because I play tin whistle, nothing is expected of me. I get to play the melody, which as a drummer, I always wanted to play a melody and never got to. So, right. so I get to play melody, and uh, you're just one. You just kind of blend in, and you're just you're not. There's no pressure, so no one expects anything of me, and I get to just play. And you can have a beer at the same time. So 
<laughs> you're definitely yeah. a little more relaxed uh, after after a pint. Yeah. So so I think like well, that's the me, law, isn't it? You can't go to an Irish <laughs> pub and not have a pint at least. They'll um, laugh you out of the place. Well, it's, it's semi-enforced <laughs> law. It's, uh, it's yeah. on the books. I don't know how well it's enforced. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's like, it's just low-key. Uh, the people there are very supportive, awesome people. So, like, you're around really nice people that no one's being paid to be there. You're, you're, you're there because you want to play the music. And to me, when I spend my life in the professional side of music, it's really refreshing to go somewhere where people are there just to play music. Yeah. And so it's kind of unadulterated um, that they're there really just because they enjoy playing music. And that that's that's just refreshing because you're not going to have to deal with afterwards someone saying, oh, you only pay me this much, I need this much, right. or can we get paid this much next time? Or you don't have to worry about writing anybody a check, you know, it, it be, you know, because I'm not the leader of the group or anything. And, and again, we're there because we just we're carrying on the tradition of Irish traditional music, which was people getting together in town to, to play music. Right. Hey, um, so just yeah. just wrapping up here. Tell me, go through your day. What's what's the ideal day for Colin O'Donohoe? What does he do? Like, give me your give me your your typical day. Well, it, uh, so. I have children. Mm-hmm. Um, I have twins that are three. So, uh, and then I've got a sixteen-year-old and an eight-year-old. So, oh, mornings, I know your day. <laughs> yeah. So mornings start out a little chaotic. Right. And then the two boys get out the door, and then I'm with the twins. Um, when I'm writing and I have projects, then I'll have a babysitter for a few hours. So then I'll go into my studio. I write music for a while. Then I'm out. I take care of the the kids. Um, you know, in the after they take a nap for a little bit, I'll go back and write. Uh, and then when the kids are all home, then it's, you know, kind of father time with all the children. Right. And then in the evenings, you know, depending on if I have a gig or not, then I'll go out. So, and that happens a couple of times a week. So I'll, I'll have gigs. Uh, I play with Manhattan Samba and I do the Irish music. Um, I play at a little bodega on Fridays. Uh, with some Italian musicians. So I do various, like every day is a little different. Every day is different gigs. Every day, uh, geez, there's different deadlines. Uh, and then there's recordings. So sometimes I'll be going to a recording studio yeah. or sometimes I'll do recordings straight at my house. Um, so, But you're out at least a couple times a week performing live in some yeah, venue. Yeah, I would say three. That's at least three. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome that yeah. you get out. You gotta, you, know? you gotta, you gotta stay. Like, I, I do a lot of composition for media, but I feel like I was always, I was always a live musician, uh, drummer. I made my living uh, for a few years as a jazz drummer, and obviously, it was, you know. I wasn't living uh, in a rich part of town or anything, but I was making my living as a jazz drummer and paying the bills. And so I've always, I don't know, that that never leaves you. I don't think that ever leaves you. Right. So you have to play live. It keeps you connected to the music. It keeps you connected to people. You re- you have to remember that music is a, is a personal thing. And I feel that playing live music, uh, especially here in New York City, playing live music, keeps you um, aware of that and aware of your own roots and I think it makes you a stronger composer it makes your music more relatable to more people um, 
so yeah so i i definitely play out as much as i can that's great hey colin what is the best way for our audience to reach you to find out about you best website to find out the, about the world maestro colin o'donohoe who you know where do we go to find out about you well that would be exactly it so world worldmaestro.com that's my website okay and that's where i would prefer everyone go uh they will hear all the music and be updated on on everything if people are on soundcloud the i don't know i don't handle my soundcloud account but i think it's world maestro uh, i do have someone that handles that for me but just go to my worldmaestro.com and you'll you'll have links to all the music videos uh, the YouTube channel, everything, you know, there's everything is basically on my home page. Okay. And from there, you can then go to um, external places and subscribe, like subscribe to the YouTube channel or subscribe on SoundCloud or other places like that. You can find my Facebook is World Maestro as well. So you can uh, you can like me on Facebook. Um, but really, worldmaestro.com. Excellent. You heard it from the man, Colin O'Donohoe. Hey, Colin, it was an absolute uh, pleasure to uh, chat with you today and get all this unbelievable information. I'm sure nobody out there knows a world maestro. I certainly didn't before I met Colin. So uh, check out his website. And by the way, the website looks fantastic. Really great job on it. Really good information, the way it's laid out. So ladies and gentlemen, check that out. It's been a pleasure to have Colin on Dharmic Evolution and uh, may your, your uh, prosperity continue. Uh, good luck with all your projects. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for, for inviting me. Well, there you go. Now, it's not every day you get to hear an interview like that. Colin O'Donohoe, a man boldly taking music where it has never gone before. Really enjoyed that interview. Everybody, James Kevin O'Connor, thanks so much for joining me today on the Dharmic Evolution. Really enjoyed Colin being here today, and I will catch you next time. I'll either see you on the socials, or I'll see you from the stage.